Today's scripture is Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of God. All right, good afternoon, New Hope. Um, and if you notice, Pastor Rob opens each and every sermon with the salutation, New Hope, it is good to be with you all today. And it's strange how something so seemingly routine and habitual becomes weighty and profound as we are unable to physically gather together. I'm thankful and praise God that we're able to take advantage of these technologies afforded to us to gather as we do. But I personally lament the inability to truly be with you all. Nonetheless, though this is not ideal, it is a privilege to still be given the opportunity to open God's word with you today. I want to open today's sermon by addressing the elephant in the room and then not speaking about it again. I felt led to pick a timely passage to teach from to help us in the midst of our current situation surrounding the coronavirus. But I also realized that the sermon ultimately should be timeless because God's word is. I don't want to preach a message about the coronavirus. I want to preach a message about Christ. I want to acknowledge that much of what I have to say today will and should apply to our situation right now. But I don't actually want to speak to it. Rather, I want the words of our passage today to speak timeless and necessary truths for us in the days that stretch far beyond the historical moment that we are experiencing now. And so I will make it my goal to speak nothing about the coronavirus, but in all reality, still be in every way addressing it. My goal is that if you eliminated this introduction, would you be able to tell that we were in the midst of a pandemic? Or rather, would you conclude that we need to pray and rejoice in all circumstances to know the presence and the peace of God that is only found in the person of Jesus Christ? But New Hope, if I have any hope of edifying and encouraging you today and exalting our Lord this afternoon, we must pray. So would you please bow your heads with me? Gracious God in heaven, I thank you for who you are. I pray that as we look at Philippians chapter 4, that we would walk away rejoicing in who you are. I pray that you would teach us to rest in you and to know the peace of God through the power of prayer. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, our message today, if you're just joining, comes from the book of Philippians uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Uh, if we could distill this letter down to its most essential theme, the result would be a single word, joy. Philippians 4.4 is a succinct summary of the main exhortation Paul is trying to communicate to the church 
in Philippi, that they and we would rejoice always in the Lord. Paul says that the reason he continues to labor on in proclaiming Christ and the gospel is for the progress and joy of his hearers, Philippians 1.25. He speaks of his joy and theirs throughout the letter. He repeats the command again, again, again and again in Philippians 1.18, Philippians 3.1, and finally in Philippians 4.4. 4. This small verse is arguably the heartbeat of not just the letter of the Philippians, but of the entire Christian life, that we would rejoice, that we would delight ourselves in the Lord always. Joy in God is not a suggestion, according to Paul. It ought to be the characterization of the Christian life. But how does one truly honor and obey such a command? Joy is something that is, seems so fleeting. Can we really be called upon by God? Are, are we really held accountable to do something that we feel we have very little control over? Is it really practical? What about those of us who deeply struggle to be joyful? This command doesn't seem joy-producing. It, it's more stress-inducing. Well, Paul has not left us to imagine how we are to think and obey this command. He outlines the instruction and practices of how we are to understand and live and obey it from verses 5 through 9. Which brings me uh, to our outline and our title for the message today. Rejoicing in the Lord instruction and practice for the power, presence, and peace of God through prayer. Let me draw your attention first to the primary command itself, rejoice in the Lord. An important distinction in the quest for joy is what we are supposed to rejoice in. Paul does not ask the Christian to face uh, incredible suffering, trials, or pain and to rejoice in the thing that we are experiencing or to look at those circumstances or situations and rejoice in them. But we are to rejoice rather in something that is greater than those circumstances, that is God. An example may help in illustrating the kind of joy God intends us to feel. On any given day, I take much delight and pleasure in my wife and my children. Unless we've had some kind of fight or we have sinned against one another to disrupt our enjoyment, I can always look to the goodness of the relationship that I have with Jenny or my kids in the midst of any situation and still find myself feeling thankful and joyful for them. That reality does not and should not change based on circumstances. Or consider a father who's maybe been recently laid off from his job right before his wife is due with their first child. The circumstance and the added stress of that situation could cripple any man's experience of joy, but it ought not eclipse the reality and rejoicing on the day when he first meets his son or daughter. He rejoices in the birth and life of his child despite the circumstances. But I realize that analogy breaks down because our joy in people may be dependent on many changing things in the relationship. And more importantly, those relationships with those people cannot act upon us. They can't produce in us affections for them. But God has the power to do that. Consider the new birth. We who were far off, by the power of the gospel, God enabled and produced in us the capacity and the desire to delight in him and know that through Christ, he delights in us. God is a superior joy because he is unchanging. 
God's joy is reliable because of his steadfast love. And we can always recall the good news of what God in Christ has secured for us. Rejoicing in the Lord is not something that we merely feel and do because we've decided to set our affections on God. And then now we are reliant on our own fickle emotions. But God effectively works joy into us in order to obey the command. So that should be encouraging because when we find ourselves not in conformity to the command, it cannot be because of an error or fault in God, but it must be because in some way we have faltered. But our failure is not something to grow despondent about. It's in fact an encouragement that the Lord forgives, that to know that God has not left us to just ourselves, but he has provided means in the Christian life by which we can come to him to restore our joy and to keep the command. When we truly pause and consider all that God is and all that he does and the surpassing worth of being known by him, we too can certainly feel the weight of trials and sufferings that can lead to sorrows, but we are not ultimately crushed by them because God has provided himself as the foundation for our joy, which cannot be taken from us. So the command to rejoice is not without distinction. We rejoice in the Lord, in a person, God in Christ, as a means to overcome the soul-crushing effects of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Rejoice in the Lord we must, because there is nothing higher that we should desire to obtain. Everything is given to us by God to know his joy. So Paul goes on from verse 4 into an additional command in verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. This unique word translated as reasonableness comes from a Greek word called epiakia, which is not only hard to pronounce, but it's also a hard word to uh, understand fully in the English language. But it gathers with it the meaning uh, of a kind of gentleness, a, a patience, a forbearance. What it means for the Christian is that we ought not to be duplicitous, saying that we believe and have joy in God, but living in such a way that does not reflect it. Saying that we treasure Christ, but acting like knowing and believing in him doesn't change anything. The experience of the man in Matthew who finds the treasure hidden in the field, is not experiencing regret or reluctance. It says in his joy, he sells all that he has to obtain the field. He knows the value of the treasure there. And so he is all in. He may not have a dime to his name, but he has the treasure and it is his joy. So this is why Paul says in the very next verse, do not be anxious. Anxiety does not produce this epiakia. Have you ever seen an anxious, gentle person? Have you ever encountered a reasonable and patient worry wart? You don't because those things are like oil and water. It's hard to be gentle, forbearing, patient, and reasonable when we are filled with worry and angst. Anxiousness does not produce the epiakia Paul is speaking of here. Anxiousness is not befitting for the Christian life because, one, it will not rightly reflect the value of having joy in God to others. Secondly, God has already dealt with the one thing that can truly and ultimately ruin you. 
His son's death has removed the guilt of sin and has bought with it your eternal life. Third, God has provided not just a future hope, but a means to counter anxiety in our lives today, which we will see in a moment. And then fourthly, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to others. The Lord is at hand. I could not tell you with passion and zeal to not be anxious if I did not have something to actually back up what I'm saying to you. Paul says, the Lord is at hand. His presence is the reason we are not to be anxious. He is not a distant God. He is not apathetic. He is not powerless to help us in our needs. But he is alive and he is active and sovereign and reigning over all the things that we find ourselves anxious of. So we should not worry as the world worries. We need not fear as others fear. The Lord is at hand. So Paul launches off into this argument on the means, the, the means behind how to rejoice in the Lord always, on, on what brings the saints to this place of Epiakia. God's provided means to know his power, his presence, and peace so that we can rejoice always in him is none other than prayer. If anxiety is the enemy to delighting in God always, prayer needs to be our weapon of choice. J.C. Ryle writes, prayer is the mightiest weapon that God has placed in our hands. It is the best weapon to use in every difficulty and the surest remedy in every trouble. It is the key that unlocks a treasury of promises and the hand that draws forth grace to help in time of need. It is the silver trumpet that God commands us to sound in all our necessity, and it is the cry that he has promised to always listen. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what is Paul teaching us here about prayer? Well, first, the Lord does not restrict or limit the requests that can be made to him that provoke a spirit of anxiety in us. First Peter 5.7 tells us to cast all our burdens on him because he cares for us. By not placing a restriction on what we can bring to the Lord, we are quite literally invited to bring all of it to God. He is not made weary by our pleas to him. He rather invites us in the scriptures to pray without ceasing. Second, the freedom with which we can come to the Lord in prayer is parallel to the universal scope of the command to rejoice always. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, let your requests be made to God in order that you can rejoice always. There's an ultimate scope to what Paul is speaking about. He then goes to talk about uh, general and specific kinds of prayer that we can give toward God. He mentions prayer generally, but then he mentions supplication. Supplication is just another type of prayer, but it's humble, reverent, pleading for a situation. The gift of prayer and supplication made with thanksgiving is that we can boldly approach our Father in heaven with any and all of our requests. The more fervent the prayer that you make, the more deeply we reflect the posture that we believe God to be our refuge, our peace, and our joy. And fourth, 
we learn prayer is not so much for God as it is for us. Paul does not want to imply that God does not have a knowledge here, and that's why we need to pray to him. But we make our requests known to God because God is a person with whom we have a relationship with. Prayer is the ongoing dialogue of faith in conjunction with the scriptures to commune and to communicate with God and is made possible by Jesus' death. And so God is inviting us to share all of our burdens with him. In our fight for joy, then, we must not take for granted. We must not forsake the privilege and the discipline of prayer. John Piper aptly puts it, Prayer pursues joy in fellowship with Jesus and in the power to share his life with others. And prayer pursues God's glory by treating him as the inexhaustible reservoir of hope and help. In prayer, we admit our poverty and God's prosperity, our bankruptcy, his bounty, our misery, his mercy. Therefore, prayer highly exalts and glorifies God precisely by pursuing everything we long for in him and not in ourselves. But we have not even gotten to the best part. The result of prayer, verse 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, make your requests be made known to God. And then verse 7 says, and the result of prayer, the peace of God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If it's possible here to make a distinction, better than the gift and the freedom with which we can come to God in prayer is the resulting power and the effectiveness of prayer on us. Remember we said earlier that the joy in the Lord is not to be thought of as just an activity that we do, but it is something that God works in us. And so verse 7 is then the result of our petitions to God in prayer. The direct result of prevailing prayer in the life of a Christian is that they are given the peace of God. Now, an error here would be to conclude that the peace of God is just the antithesis to anxiety, that God just wants to make you feel better. The peace of God is a much fuller and broader term than that. It goes far beyond than just being less anxious. The peace of God is at least three things in the context of this letter. First, the peace of God is peace from God. We do not produce this peace in us by our prayers. This peace is granted, given to us by God's grace as a gift with our prayers. It is the very thing that Paul, in almost all of his openings of his letters, he beseeches God to give the churches that he writes to this peace. If you were to look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, To the saints who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. The peace of God is wrought in us, not by our will, but by God's. It is a gift from him. Second, the peace of God is peace with God. It is only by the shed blood of Christ that we are able to have peace with God. It is his life, his death, and resurrection that has given us reconciliation with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is quick to remark that his peace, which surpasses all understanding, is made available only in Jesus Christ. 
In Philippians 3.16, Paul says that we must hold true to that which we have uh, attained, which is connected with what he says earlier in verse 9 of the chapter, that the righteousness from God that depends on faith in the person of Christ. Faith in Christ is peace with God. So third, the peace of God is one that defies all natural understanding. That is not to say that it is senseless or irrational or unintellectual, but only that it surpasses the natural man's capacity to adequately explain or fully understand it. So for example, how can those, we who are finite, even begin to search and know fully the things given to us by he who is infinite? The peace of God is experienced in the Christian because they have been given a new mind. We are made new creatures with new spiritual faculties and capacities that are only beginning to brush the surface of the depth and the height and the breadth of the love and glory of our Savior. So the peace of God also surpasses all understanding that the world cannot begin to comprehend because to the outsider looking into the Christian's life, prayer perhaps may seem like it's doing little to affect or change the circumstances about which we are praying about. But for the Christian, prayer accomplishes everything in changing the person making the prayer. If God will give us nothing more than his peace in times of suffering, does the Christian really ultimately care whether or not the things we ask for come to pass? Because we're trusting in the character and the goodness of God. We believe in Romans 8.32 that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We are promised his perfect peace that surpasses our limited understanding. You have to remember rejoicing in God is not contingent on circumstances being made more fortuitous for us. Joy in God is having and knowing Christ who is our peace. And so fourthly, the peace of God is the power of God at work in the heart and the mind of the believer. Paul says that the result of prayer is a peace that goes beyond merely removing the anxiety that we feel, but it is also the double cure in guarding us from future anxiety. The peace of God is a guard for the hearts and minds of the people of God. Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The peace of God granted in prayer protects our hearts and emotions. It guards our minds from sinful and joy-robbing thoughts by prayer. The call in times of your anxiety, New Hope, is to pray. There is simply no other path toward consistently rejoicing in the Lord otherwise. And so I encourage you to take hold of our greatest weapon in the fight for joy and to pray earnestly on the things that bring you fear, worry, and doubt. But lest you think Paul's only exhortation in here is to pray so that we can have more joy, Paul pushes the exhortation further into practices and instructions on the life and mind of a Christian. In verse 8, he goes further into how we can guard our minds. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, 
lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now the scope of those things that we can think about are innumerable. There are so many good things that we can fill our minds with. And yet Paul gives the lengthy instruction because we as sin-prone people do not gravitate toward good news, or at least thinking about it. We tend to focus on the bad, what is happening at our jobs, what's going on in our homes, what's happening in politics, what's going on in the world. At any given time, if you dare watch the news, what is the ratio of things celebrated as good versus things that are negative and anxiety-inducing? In your own thoughts of your inner life, does your mind tend to gravitate toward things that are lovely, true, and excellent, and honorable? Or do you tend to focus on things that discourage, worry, cause worry, fear, and doubt? It is said that we live in the age of, in the age of anxiety, but I think we have always lived in the age of anxiety, because apart from God and the good news of His Son, there is no hope. There is no peace. There is no reason to rejoice. And Paul knows that the battle for our hearts begins in our mind. That is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we must take every thought captive to obey Christ. In Romans 12.2, he says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't put yourself in the position to feed negative thoughts that can rob you of your joy in God, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. If you truly believe you have nothing else to think on right now that can be for your benefit, if your life is really marked and you can say that there is nothing good or excellent, I have to ask you, friend, do you know Christ? Because if you have Christ, then you have more things to think about that is good for your soul than you could ever exhaust in a hundred lifetimes. The good news of Jesus Christ come to die in the place of sinners is the truest thing that we can know. Jesus was the most honorable person because he obeyed his Father's will, even to the point of death. God the Father was just when he poured out his wrath and condemnation for our sins on his Son to give us eternal joy. There is nothing purer or more lovely than Jesus Christ who ransomed his people by rising from the grave three days later. There is no one under heaven or above earth that is more excellent or worthy of praise than Jesus Christ, who is our perfect peace. Church, there is no one more commendable that I can put forth to you than our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are never without much good to think about because God has sent his Son into the world. And he desires nothing from you but then for you to believe. In that, his sacrifice, his payment for your sins, his atonement, his power, the benefits, they are all freely made available by faith and trust in his son's name. It is a call to repent and believe and think on the gospel. Paul gives one more instruction from our passage to the Philippians in the help to rejoice in God always. And that is to look at our church leaders. Specifically, I'm talking about new hopes. He says, what you have learned, received, heard, and seen in Paul, 
practice these things. Verse 9. Now we could consider Paul and how he suffered for Christ in prison, how he faced adversity, starvation, beatings, and situations, and yet the man still had the praise of God on his lips. And we would be benefited if we did that, no doubt. But I also believe God has put leaders like Paul in our churches who we do learn from, who we can actually see, and who we can actually hear. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers as a leader or an elder, an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Our pastors, he later says in chapter 5.17, are worthy of double honor. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. New Hope, I've had the privilege of watching our leaders in our church pray for us in each and every one of their elders' meetings. I have seen their humility and sacrifice, faithfully seeking to honor God with their lives to be examples worth imitating, whether or not they are always fully aware of it. I see them labor on, as Paul says, for our joy, so that we might be found blameless at the Lord's coming. I have said this before, and I will say it again. If the Lord would grant me the mercy to continue in the ministry as a pastor one day, I will have been made a better one because of the men who are the leaders in our church. I encourage you to seek their wisdom, to consider their manner of life, not because of something that is good in them, but because of the good that God has wrought in them to be our elders. The goal is not to merely admire and give praise to our leaders, but it is to emulate and praise the God that works in them to serve us and be an example of the values God wants for his people. I have served with these men, and I know that they are laboring for your joy. And so I want to personally thank Pastor Rob, Alex, Tim, and Che, and the many deacons of our church, and your families for the love and the example that you give to the people of God. Paul says that if we practice these things that we've received, then we will have the presence of God. Verse 9 says, if you practice these things, you will have the presence of God. So I'm going to close us with this final quote. The majority of Christian men and women who pray to a living God know very little about real prevailing prayer. And yet prayer is the key that unlocks the door of God's treasure house. It is not too much to say that all real growth in the spiritual life, all victory over temptation, all confidence and peace in the presence of difficulties and dangers, all repose of spirit in times of great disappointment or loss, all habitual communion with God depends upon the practice of secret prayer. New Hope, there is nothing more for us now to consider but the glory and the good news of our Savior Jesus Christ and the gift of prayer that was purchased for us so we can be made joyful in Him. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, I pray that you would be glorified in this message. I pray that your word would sound forth as people look over their Bibles in their homes. I pray, Lord, that you would remove anxiousness in our hearts and that we would set our minds on the things above, that we would take each thought captive in in obedience to Jesus Christ, and that we would know the peace of God, that we would know 
the perfect peace of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that a command from you is to be happy always. What a God that we serve, that a command and duty is to be, is to be pleased and to be delighted in you. Thank you, God, for being our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.